You're listening to Radically Pragmatic, a podcast from the Progressive Policy Institute. We talk with lawmakers, policy experts, and thought leaders about the issues driving the news nationally and internationally. The Progressive Policy Institute is a catalyst for policy innovation and political reform with offices in Washington, D.C. and Brussels. Its mission is to create radically pragmatic ideas for moving America beyond ideological and partisan deadlock. We encourage analytical conversations, not your typical partisan talking points. Hi, I'm Will Marshall, president of the Progressive Policy Institute, and this is Radically Pragmatic, a podcast by PPI. I'm joined today by Jeremiah Johnson, who's policy director of the Center for New Liberalism. Jeremiah and I uh, have a great interview to share with you today with uh, Congresswoman Stacey Plaskett, who represents the Virgin Islands in the House of Representatives. Uh, But what, what propelled her into the news recently was her standout role as one of the impeachment managers in February at the impeachment, the Senate impeachment trial of Donald Trump. Uh, And she just put uh, forward a really trenchant uh, presentation that uh, caught a lot of people's attention. Uh, And we're going to talk to her not only about that, but also about what it's like to represent the Virgin Islands in Congress. Uh, and she has some really historical, uh, fascinating historical background about uh, the islands and their uh, relationship with, with the United States. Uh, we'll get to that all, all uh, soon, but uh, we've got some news to talk about here, Jeremiah. We have uh, this week, uh, Joe Biden, President Biden, who did not get a State of the Union address, nonetheless gets, I guess, the next best thing which is uh, an address to Congress, to both houses of Congress. Uh, And uh, no doubt he'll want to talk about his big American jobs plan. But, you know, as you look at this opportunity, what do you what what do you see ahead in this this speech? I think if President Biden is smart, he's going to focus on the economy because that's that's going to be a real strength for him, I think, over the next two years. I've We're in a very interesting spot where we're coming out of a recession, but this is a very different recovery than what we saw out of the 2008 recession. Um, You know, the 2008 recession was marked by really slow job growth, this really anemic kind of crawling towards the finish line. Just it felt like the recovery lasted years and years, whereas this recovery partially because of how aggressive the government has been in, in fiscal stimulus, this recovery feels like we're about to boom, you know, that every economic forecast I've seen talks about how, you know, the, the economy is going to be running, you know, super hot for the next several years. So I think if president Biden is, has good political instincts and the, the case for his good political instincts is pretty strong right now, given how the last year has played out for him. I think he's going to emphasize the economy. Um, he's going to emphasize that this infrastructure bill can keep that boom going. Um, you know, if, if, if economic forecasters are saying we're going to be down to 4% unemployment by the end of the year, um, that, that's what I would emphasize with him. I'm curious what you think. When, when you think about the economic recovery and like what aspects are are the most crucial for for policymakers to focus on? What what do you consider when you think about the overall picture? All right, uh, I think you know Biden has a real challenge here though because he got his first big package, the uh, uh, 
American Rescue Plan through uh, based on you know the promise of beating back the COVID pandemic and sparking a broad uh, recovery. And the question is whether he can do it again, get another really big package. This is a $2.3 billion American jobs plan uh, that I think he'll talk about. And the question is whether he can convince Congress and the American people that, you know, that uh, that stimulating the economy needs this package, but certainly there are parts of this economy that need special help. Uh, he's pointed out that uh, women were on the front lines of this uh, of this COVID uh, battle. They tended to, you know, be in occupations that uh, suffered heavily, and the uh, you know helping occupations, uh, school teachers, uh, home health care, and others. And certainly, getting women back into the workforce is going to be uh, a, a prior a priority. And on that, uh, Jeremiah, I should I should mention that PPI. Uh, this week has an exciting webinar on how we can help women get back into the workforce uh, following the pandemic. And we're thrilled to announce that uh, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand of New York and Representative Terry Sewell of Alabama, who's one of our favorites, will be joining us for that event, along with a, a great panel of experts on labor and childcare and gender equity and other, other important themes there. I do that's think that's be... really important. Yeah, I think um, it. we have to recognize how the disparate impact of this recession has has fallen on different people especially for families with kids you know that all of a sudden you're trying to work from home you're trying to do your job but you're also trying to make sure your kid gets educated from home and you know all too often that that becomes the woman's job um you know this is a women's job this is a, a, a woman's role and it, it's not fair, but it seems that that's what's happened and that that has led to more women dropping out of the workforce, or even if they didn't drop out, it's, it's the stress and the, um, the management of that issue that falls on their shoulders. And, you know, it's, it's something we as a society have to keep moving forward on that this can't, you know, children and education can't be a women's issue. It has to be an everyone issue because it, it affects everyone. Um, so I'm, I'm very interested to see what Senator Gillibrand has to say about, you know, specific things that can be done to to help ease that transition. And, and look, a hot, a hot labor market is good for everyone. A hot labor market is good for every racial group, every gender, every part of the country. Um, so a, a good labor market can cure a lot of ills. <laughs> um, but we want to make sure that we're using that positive force, that that hot labor market to really spread the, the wealth around. Well, speaking of, of, of women in the economy, uh, PPI, you know, Jeremiah has a great project called the Mosaic Project. And later this week, we're going to hear uh, from uh, Representative Chrissy Houlihan from Pennsylvania's 6th Congressional District. She's part of this Mosaic effort to shine a light on really the, uh, the scarcity of women in top policy making uh, positions around the economy, around high technology. Now, I should say that's changed a lot under Joe Biden. He's, he's elevated women to, uh, to, to really important policy roles. But in my long, uh, you know, too long uh, uh, experience in Washington, we've seen really the usual suspects, uh, uh, male, white male economists who've really dominated this discourse up until now and what uh, Biden has done. So that's a very exciting development that we'll be talking about also here uh, this week.
Uh, the other big issue, Jeremiah, that uh, that we're particularly concerned with and want to hear about in this uh, speech to Congress is, you know, the whole school to work transition. Uh, Joe Biden's talked about, you know, uh, cutting uh, student the student uh, debt burden uh, for folks. Uh, but we've also been trying to draw attention to all the people who don't go to college. In fact, that's the majority of young people. And for these folks, uh, it's been a terrible year. They've lost, you know, they've lost school, they lost job connections. They've, you know, it's kind of a lost year in their lives. And uh, trying to create a much more robust system for uh, helping people get the classroom education they need, but just as importantly, job skills and the kind of social skills that you need to work in a job setting. Uh, we just have to make a big investment in that in this country. And that's something that Joe Biden's promising to do. Uh, here again, we've got something this week that I think will be of interest to folks. Uh, we're going to be speaking with Representative Chris Pappas of New Hampshire and Jennifer Kemp, who is the Director of Youth Services at the U.S. Department of Labor's Office on the Workforce Development, about how we can create multiple pathways from school to work. So that, you know, people aren't just faced with this binary choice uh, among, uh, you know, between college and, and, uh, and uh, you know, basically uh, trying to compete with a high school education. You, you, you know, the, the, your group, the Center for New Liberalism, uh, Jeremiah, uh, represents thousands, tens of thousands of young people in this country. How do you all think about this school-to-work challenge and, and, the, and, the, and the college debt one? I think that there's a common through line as you were talking about a couple of the events you guys have coming up where I'm, I'm really glad PPI is thinking about things that are not native to your to your subgroup, basically, to your demographic. Um, you know, if we're just being blunt for a second, you know, you and I are both white men, college educated, and, and, and a lot of people in yes. D.C. are like that. Um, and the thing is, it's very easy when you're around a bunch of young college educated people to think, oh, well, college is everything. We have to focus on college as a policy. Or when you're with just a bunch of white men that all your connections are white men. Um, and that's why I'm, I'm very proud to be, you know, part of PPI and to be associated with like the Mosaic Project because it's very important to break out of that mold. And this is something we've tried to do on the neoliberal podcast to highlight um, women economists, kind of my, my niche that I know the most about is um, academic economics. And so we try to highlight at anywhere possible women who are experts in their fields because they're out there and they deserve all the attention that, you know, a, a lot, sometimes more famous male experts get. We, we talk to um, Karen Clay, who's a researcher on pollution. We talk to Mega Rajagopalan, who's a journalist covering the Uyghur genocide. We've talked with Jennifer Doliak at Texas A&M, a criminal justice researcher, and Leah Bustan at Princeton, who researches immigration. You know, this, the, these people are out there if you know where to find them. And it's really important that they have the connections to the DC think tanks, to the congressional committees, so that they can be influencing policy as well. So I, I'm very glad to, to be associated with that. Um, the college question is also interesting because it's also becoming a, a part of our identity in the same way that race and gender are. You know, there's there's a big divide in the country between exactly. college educated people and uh, and non college, and it's it's a failing I see on the left. 
a well-intentioned failing that the left is driven by energy in many instances from highly educated young people. And I love their passion. I, I love that they're passionate about helping people, but their first uh, thought goes towards people like themselves, other highly educated young people. And so they think about student debt. And while you know student debt is, is having hundreds of thousands of dollars of student debt is not a great life situation to be in, um, the, the typical person who has hundreds of thousands of dollars in student debt is also expected to earn far more in their lifetime than someone who never went to college at all. Um, you know, the, college is still a great investment. And the typical person who graduates college does not have debt or has debt that is, is very manageable, a, a low amount. So I'm, I'm frustrated when we talk about the, the pipeline to a career that so much of it centers around debt forgiveness um, rather than focusing on um, non-college workers, you know, who you can't help non-college workers with student debt forgiveness, but they are the ones who are at more danger of being left behind by the modern economy. You sometimes hear people talk about a, a bifurcated economy, a two-track economy where college graduates with high skill are doing very, very well, um, their wages are rising, and unskilled workers are, are not doing as well. Um, whether or not that's true, I do think it's a concern and it's something that we need to make sure we're not just focusing on highly educated people. Because again, when, when you go to DC think tanks, when you go to college activists, when you go to congressional interns, all these people who are in the, in the guts of it making policy are all very highly educated people. And they need to remember that most of the country does not have a college degree. Right. I, I, you've really put your finger on, I think, one of our uh, most important political fault lines today, and it's, it's education. If you look at uh, Joe Biden's victory in 2020, he, uh, he really gained not just in, sub, in the suburbs, as everybody has reported, but among edu college-educated suburbanites. Uh, and frankly, as you pointed out, Jeremiah, you know, Democrats, progressives, we've got problems on the other side of that line of that class divide, you know, with low income working, lower income, uh, lower educated working uh, folks. And, uh, uh, and you know, uh, and in fact, uh, Donald Trump made some headway with those voters, e even in losing to Biden by 7 million votes. But look, uh, this, this speech uh, this week before Congress is going to be President Biden's best opportunity to sell mm -hmm. a, a really, uh, you know, $2 trillion plus uh, package to revive the economy deal, with, you know, to uh, tackle these disparities that we've talked about here with, with women, with non-college workers, uh, and to make the case, as he's said, that, you know, our challenge is not just to return to the status quo before the pandemic, but to build back better, to create, you know, to narrow the uh, inequalities that mm -hmm. uh, the pandemic really aggravated and highlighted and to make our country more resilient against future, uh, future emergencies like the pandemic. Uh, he'll also be talking a lot about infrastructure, and that's a good, uh, that's a good way to turn to today's topic uh, with Stacey Plaskett uh, from, uh, from the Virgin Islands, uh, uh, the, the islands as she is she told us have really, uh, really huge infrastructure uh, challenges. And so they have a big, big stake uh, in the success of the Biden infrastructure plan, which is undoubtedly going to be at the center of, of, uh, of uh, the political debate uh, here for weeks to come. 
Uh, so with that, I'd say uh, we let's listen to our recent interview with Stacey Plaskett, a congresswoman and delegate from the U.S. Virgin Islands and a member of the New Democratic Coalition, the, the Pragmatic Caucus in, in the House. And she sat down with Jeremiah and I uh, at the end of last week uh, to give us her view of the You're listening to Radically Pragmatic, a podcast from the Progressive Policy Institute. We talk with elected officials and policy experts and thought leaders about the big issues dominating political debate here and abroad. My name is Will Marshall. I'm president of the Progressive Policy Institute in Washington. And I'm here joined today with my co-host, Jeremiah Johnson. Jeremiah is director of the Center for New Liberalism. That's uh, the nucleus of a nationwide network of young liberals with whom we are linked proudly here at PPI uh, and our folks who are really passionate about making our democracy work. Um, our special guest today is Representative Stacy Plaskett, who represents the U.S. Virgin Islands in the U.S. Congress. Uh, Representative Plaskett is in her fourth term in, in the House. Uh, but for me, she really burst into the national spotlight last uh, February as a member of uh, the House, uh, the, uh, the House impeachment, impeachment Managers team, which was uh, charged with making bringing the indictment, as it were, against uh, Donald Trump uh, in the Senate trial. And uh, Vogue magazine uh, called uh, Representative Plaskett the breakout star of the Senate. Uh, impeachment trial, and uh, uh, it was a stirring performance. She, uh, you, I think you unveiled that footage that nobody had seen before that point of uh, the mobs in the Capitol on January 6th, you know, uh, uh, calling for the death of Vice President Mike Pence and and uh, and uh, hunting for Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Very scary stuff. In any case, uh, Representative Plaskett is uh, the first member from a U.S. territory to serve on the House Ways and Means Committee, which she just joined us from uh, doing a, a long hearing there. She's also a leadership member of the House New Democratic Coalition, which is uh, our uh, a favorite group of Democrats in the House who are uh, very pragmatic folks that uh, we've had the privilege of working with really for a, quite a long time at PPI. And uh, she is a former member of the Transportation Committee and as such has been a, a leading voice in the Congress on infrastructure issues, which of course have come back to the center of the debate. But so without further ado, we, we wanna get you uh, in the middle of this conversation, Congresswoman. So let me just ask you to start by telling our listeners a little about yourself and what it's like to represent the, the Virgin Islands in the US uh, Congress. Well, thanks so much for having me. Uh, I'm really grateful to be on this podcast with you all because I believe that you are working on issues that fall squarely within uh, the interests of my constituents. And of course, the group that I'm closely affiliated with the New Democratic Coalition. Uh, as you said, I'm now in my fourth term in Congress, which I can't believe. This is the longest job I've ever held <laughs> in my life. <laughs> uh, but you know, it's a complete honor and privilege and very humbling uh, to be a representative here, particularly in this time in our nation's history, uh, to walk the halls, uh, to be with members who are very committed to serving the American people. Uh, and now to be here during the Biden administration when there's so much work to do uh, from recovering in terms of health crises from the COVID pandemic, 
the economic crisis that has been the outgrowth of the pandemic, uh, as well as social justice issues that are going on right now, where Americans are really trying to peel back uh, and really be come to grips with issues that we have had for many, many generations, indeed many centuries. And so uh, that confluence of issues, I think, is what's keeping me here and what keeps me going because uh, the American people uh, deserve us all working really hard right now. As you said, I represent the Virgin Islands, which is a territory, meaning that you know, by the, uh, by the resolution of the United Nations, we're a colony uh, of the United States. Um, members who represent the territories, whether they be from the Virgin Islands, where we have over 100,000 people, to Puerto Rico that has 3 million people, we're represented by one individual in the House with limited voting rights while the Democrats are in power, uh, have full voting rights in committee uh, and only partial voting rights on the floor, don't vote in final passage. And the people of the Virgin Islands have no representation in the Senate, uh, which is why interestingly, while I was an impeachment manager, uh, I knew quite a number of senators because I have to go there and lobby for them. Uh, and go on the floor and try and um, you know, fight for their, advocate for the people that I represent along with members of the other members of the territory as well. So I have a general question that I'm sure many of our listeners are wondering about. And I think we can use this general question to talk about a lot of specific issues. And so the general question to transition there is when you are a non-voting member of Congress, how do you find a way to make a difference? You are obviously still interested in making things happen for your constituents and for improving not just your constituents' lives, but the country as a whole. So what are the ways that you can impact politics and you can make a difference in Congress, even though, as you said, um, with the status as a territory and, and basically as a colony, you don't have voting rights in the full Congress? Yeah, great question. You know, I think that different members from the territories have found different ways to do that. Uh, when I came here, I saw as one of my models um, a former member from the Virgin Islands, uh, a gentleman by the name of Ron DeLugo, uh, who made it a point of knowing everybody and being very congenial. Uh, so that when he came around to asking people for things, uh, you know, this, it was a very different time in Congress. You know, this is in the 70s and 80s. And so he had relationships with members and members were able, were willing to support him in that. I got uh, advice from Steny Hoyer when I first came to Congress that members from the territories don't always have to be on the floor, but all the deals happen on the floor. And so you should make it a point to always be there. So I'm always on the floor talking with members as well. Uh, you know, other members have found other ways. Eleanor Holmes Norton has home court advantage. Uh, she's here in Washington, DC and represents DC and thus has a, a, general, a greater influence because we are here in her home. Um, Jennifer Gonzalez Colon and before her Pedro Perluisi of Puerto Rico have the added benefit of 3 million, 4 million Puerto Ricans living in New York and Florida. So therefore the Florida delegation must answer to uh, the members of Puerto Rico if they are to keep that constituency uh, following them. 
the route that I chose was to put my head down and to be considered uh, a really hard worker uh, and a real policy wonk. So that when, um, you know, I would volunteer for grunt work that others may not want to do. And interestingly, you know, being an impeachment manager was so far from where I saw myself because I hate press conferences. Uh, I don't want to saddle myself next to the speaker so that the pictures can be taken next to me. I'd rather be in my office uh, doing the work um, and being about the policy, being about affecting change that way. And I believe that that was the way that I could work behind the scenes, getting amendments into bills that are must pass bills and working on a relationship with chairs and subcommittee chairs uh, to support the people of the territory, which is why in my mind, being a new Democrat member of the new democratic coalition was so important because as you said, Will, that is the group of pragmatic Democrats who are about economic development, about issues that affect the bread and butter issues of Main Street, of most Americans. And so uh, working through that group, you know, working on infrastructure, we have task force that are really committed to coming up with workable solutions to some of the largest problems that uh, are in the, um, you know, that face Americans every day. I love that you mentioned the New Democrats because the next thing I wanted to ask was what attracted you to, you know, joining the New Democrat coalition when you first arrived in Congress? What was it that made you say, these are the people I want to ally with and these are the people who I think can help me get things done? Well, you know, at the time that I came to Congress, Ron Kine was the chair of the New Democratic Coalition. Um, and he is, you know, uh, a very moderate, uh, pragmatic uh, Democrat and I really saw myself in that vein as well. Really, um, that's who my constituents are. Uh, Virgin Islanders are small business owners. Virgin Islanders are uh, very keenly focused on uh, creating tools for economic development, um, education as a mechanism to grow wealth, uh, property ownership. You know, people are always shocked when they recognize that uh, Virgin Islanders, although we have some of the highest rates of poverty, you know, 47% of the children of the Virgin Islands live in poverty. We also have a 67% home ownership. Um, people will build, um, buy a piece of land and hold the land for 10 years, then build a basement, then build on top of that for another five years, never getting a mortgage, just putting aside money uh, all the time. And so the workings and the means by which the new Dems work um, are such that I felt ideologically hold the same weight as um, you know, Virgin Islanders and the people that I represent and myself. Uh, very interesting. Say, say something if you wouldn't mind, Congresswoman, about um, What's happened to your constituents in the Virgin Islands in the pandemic? I, you know, I, I think it's not going out on a limb to, to uh, say that you probably uh, heavily dependent on tourism, or it's an important part of your sure. uh, your economy, and you didn't have much of that in the last year. You know, just tell us a little about you know what's happened to the folks. Well, there. let me say this first. You know, the new Dems came up with a hundred days agenda. 
uh, and their top priorities, right, uh, in this Congress. And part of that, of course, is ending the pandemic and getting people back to work. But the other component is modernizing our infrastructure, combating climate change, and creating jobs. Those three are so quintessential uh, to the people of the Virgin Islands. You talked about the COVID pandemic, but I wanna take you back before that uh, to the Great Recession. Uh, the Virgin Islands, uh, at the time that I moved back home in 2004, had a really robust uh, economy. I moved back home because Virgin Islands was recruiting young people to come back home because they had financial services sector, uh, which needed, you know, we had a really robust economic development plan that was created by Congress by tax law that incentivized businesses to be there. And so we had industry, you know, at one time Martin Marietta, uh, aluminum plants, we had an oil refinery, we had financial service, private equity, money managers, uh, family uh, offices there. And so they needed lawyers, they needed architects and engineers. And so a lot of people were coming back home. Then comes the Great Recession, also comes the 2004 Jobs Act, where Republicans gutted portions of the, um, the, the tax incentives, um, the mechanisms for the tax incentives that supported Virgin Islanders. And we lost a lot of those businesses. And then in 2012, the oil refinery decided that, that oil refining oil was not as cost effective. And so we went to an 18% unemployment rate, um, employment rate with the loss of our oil refinery. And then in 2017, the Virgin Islands was hit by two category five hurricanes, uh, wow. Irma and Maria which absolutely knocked out our infrastructure due to, of course, climate change, but also in part due to Congress's lack of funding and underfunding of the territories, the lack of equity that we had in public infrastructure support over many years that caused our hospitals, um, our public infrastructure, our roads, as well as many of our schools to be absolutely decimated in that hurricane which left us only with tourism as the primary function of the islands and then COVID hits. So we are trying to rebuild um, by one, creating resiliency in our infrastructure, which is why this uh, jobs plan is so important to us to not only to utilize the funding that was afforded to us by Congress to rebuild our schools, our hospitals, our public infrastructure, but really invest in job training, invest and create um, other forms of, of growth through new market tax credits to try and bring businesses back to the territory. How do we support uh, our oil refining reopening in a safe manner? You know, having a good relationship with EPA that does that. Um, moving to solar and to having the support to move to solar and other cleaner energy sources for our islands. You know, people who live in the States don't even know how much they pay per kilowatt hour. Most places in the States, Washington, DC, it's between 11 and 14 cents per kilowatt hour. In the Virgin Islands, people pay 36 cents per kilowatt hour um, for electricity. That all not only means that people who are living on fixed income like social security, um, pensions like our elders have a hard time, but it also means that businesses 
like data centers and others who we could really attract because of the high speed and the capacity of our broadband can't come because electricity costs so much. Um, so really hoping to continuing to work with the uh, new Dems as well as on ways and means to create means and, and put in um, components in this jobs bill that are gonna support a rebirth in America's paradise, right? We're America's paradise. Uh, and we shouldn't just be a place of tourism. That's a wonderful thing, but we really need to have a well-rounded economy so that we can um, absorb the shocks of different types of market and climate change. And also so that we can get rid of the, the worst part is our brain drain. I love when guests anticipate the next question and we can transition uh -oh. so seamlessly. Um, because the next thing I was wanting to ask about is, you know, what, what can an infrastructure package do for the Virgin Islands? Obviously, infrastructure is the big buzzword in D.C. right now. It's what mm -hmm. everybody's focused on. And both the traditional kind of infrastructure, you know, roads and bridges and ports, but also, you know, pipes and broadband and, and some social care, like, like child care and elder care um, are, are being considered part of an infrastructure package now. So if I had a question, it would be two things, I guess. With your experience, you know, you've been on the Transportation Committee, you're currently on the Ways and Means Committee. How do you, through the committees, impact what goes into these infrastructure bills? What are your goals? And how can these infrastructure bills impact people in the Virgin Islands? We've already talked about it a little bit, but what are some of the, you know, the less obvious ways beyond we can build a bunch of, you know, things <laughs> down there? What, what are some well, of the ways that that package can impact your constituents? Sure. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a history major, so I always go back to history. So in the late 60s and early 70s, Congress came up and the federal government at that time came up with a plan that they called Operation Bootstraps. And this was a holistic approach to creating economic growth in the territories. This is when we started with these, uh, you know, Puerto Rico had their pharmaceutical industry that we know is no longer there. The Virgin Islands was able to attract an oil refinery, um, bauxite, uh, you know, refining all of those things um, to bring these companies down there. Uh, because like the other territories that we had at one point, Wyoming, Montana, um, the West, federal government always injected incentives for people to move there and to grow those economies so that they could become self-sufficient and eventually become states. We have kind of stagnated that in the territories by not coming up with a Marshall Plan or a means by which the territories could become self-sufficient. You know, several years ago, we uh, decided to have an oversight board um, over Puerto Rico, but that oversight board is not really to grow the economy of Puerto Rico. It's just to make sure that shareholders get paid for the money that they're owed. Um, that Wall Street gets, gets paid for what's owed to them on bonds. Uh, and so I'd love to see in this infrastructure bill uh, us to look holistically at how places like that are underserved, not just the Virgin Islands, but underserved rural areas, even underserved, you know, pockets of urban areas. Looking at, you know, in Washington, D.C., uh, what's available in Northwest, uh, even now in Brooklyn or Capitol Hill, is not what's available in um, Capitol Heights or in Anacostia. Um, you know, what's available in um, Prospect Park in Brooklyn Heights 
in Brooklyn is not what's available in Crown Heights uh, in Brooklyn, in New York City as well, or in areas of Hunts Point in the Bronx, right? So we have rural desert areas that are urban areas as well, along with territories that have been left out of the loop. And so we need to look at those areas holistically and say, what are the wraparound things that a jobs plan can do to support them? That means broadband infrastructure, really coming to grips and recognizing that broadband is the 21st century electricity, is what was in the 19th century, the railroads, the connector of goods and services in this country, and that the government must make the final investment to ensure that that happens. Uh, in the territories, I'm concerned with ports, uh, with creating a transshipment port out of the Virgin Islands. We've been owned by seven nations and they didn't purchase us because they thought we were gonna be a great tourist spot for them. They purchased us because of our geographic, our um, strategic location geographically in the mouth of the Caribbean um, as really a means to inject themselves into the region itself. Um, the United States purchased us from Denmark to be a buffer to German U-boats during World War I, uh, to really, we are the most Eastern as well as the most Southern point in the United States. <clears throat> Venezuela is right off of our shores. And hence, we have tremendous amount of trafficking of drugs that are coming into the United States through the Virgin Islands because drug dealers have recognized what those seven nations did as well, that we are strategically situated to project into the United States. And so there's a great need for the United States to recognize that and to invest in these island nations, uh, you know, these island locations so that we can project American greatness in the Caribbean region so that other Caribbean nations will eventually uh, side with America when it comes to UN votes, OAS votes, uh, because they see what America does even in the Caribbean to that which it owns itself. Well, so what I'm hearing is that this infrastructure bill is just gonna be really crucial for you, um, that uh, the Virgin Islands needs uh, a lot of the things that uh, this bill would provide. But as you know, being a history major, <laughs> uh, the, uh, uh, we've talked infrastructure for years in Washington, yeah. never seen, uh, never gotten anywhere lately. Um, well, you know, the new Dems, right, uh, in the Trump administration, infrastructure was the one thing that we were like, we will work with this administration on this. And it seemed as if nothing could get done. I believe that because of the crises that we are in as a nation uh, and the need to um, jumpstart our economy in a way that, you know, the American Rescue Plan and the relief bill is great for stabilizing, but it's not going to project us into the future. And I think that this is the bill that can do that. And I think there's a recognition on both sides that that's necessary the extent and how much is, I think, the sticking point. How much are we going to pay for? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm very much in favor of, uh, you know, doing some kind of uh, changes to the corporate tax rate. Where we end up in that, I think is still up for debate. And I do believe that there is some wiggle room in that. 
the uh, you know, new Dems have also talked about an infrastructure bank, which would allow localities and municipalities like a Virgin Islands, other places that don't have the internal resources to be able to get a loan um, to then keep up with what er other areas are doing as well. Uh, that's, uh, that's an idea that we've been uh, strongly advocating for for years and so, sort of sorry to see it not uh, appear yet in, uh, in the White House plan. Um, say a word if you won't, don't mind about this, uh, the status of the Virgin Islands as a colony. Is that a source of you know, resentment? Uh, is this something that uh, people want change? What's the political, you know, what kind of changes or evolution in the political relationship sure. between the Virgin Islands and the mainland, if you will, you know, do your people want to see? Well, I think it's twofold um, for us as a territory. Um, one is there's a continued resentment and um, unfinished business with the previous owners, Denmark. Uh, you know, for those of us who are multi-generational Virgin Islanders, the notion of Americans and others talking about Denmark being the happiest nation in the world uh, we recognize that that happiness is based off of our backs, <laughs> that uh, Denmark was in fact one of the most aggressive slave um, owning and hardest. Uh, the Danish West Indies had the most brutal form of slavery in the Caribbean. Um, you know, life expectancy was below 30 years of age um, in the Danish West Indies when the United States sold the Virgin Islands because the laws were such that you had to be landowners or have a certain amount of um, income to be, and have a certain amount of income to be able to vote. Most Virgin Islanders that look like me did not have a say into what that purchase would be. And the money that the United States gave to Denmark for the sale, 25 million in gold bullion, in 1917, um, went directly to Copenhagen, was not invested in the Virgin Islands. And to top it all off, all four of my grandparents who were alive at that time, then became citizens of nowhere for 10 years. They had no citizenship. They lost their Danish citizenship and did not become American citizens for another 10 years. And during that time, Denmark was able to extract extract enormous wealth um, from the islands because the people had no place of redress during that time. Um, and so there are issues that we still linger with regard to Den Denmark. And um, many of us balk at the amount of romant uh, you know, romanticizing that previous relationship. Uh, and now we're kind of betwixt and between because our economy and our populations have not grown to a size where we believe we can push for statehood, we are kind of in a untenable um, netherworld of remaining as a colony. Um, you know, when you're 100,000 people and 40% living in poverty, it's a little difficult to talk about becoming a state. Uh, the United States has not in, uh, put in the investment into the Virgin Islands and other places for them to rise to the occasion uh, to become <coughs> uh, you know, uh, mature enough 
to request that kind of status. Um, additionally, there are continue to be on the books um, a set of Supreme Court cases that are called the insular cases, which state that the people who live in the territories should not be given full rights, should not be given full voting rights, because the people who reside in territories are inferior savage races who cannot understand Anglo-Saxon principles of law. Now, these are Supreme Court cases that were the opinions were written by the same justice who wrote Plessy v. Ferguson, separate but equal. And yet, the last three administrations, the Obama administration, Bush administration, Bush one, Bush two, Obama, Trump, have all supported those cases when they have been challenged. Um, so that provides a lot of resentment as well among the people of the territory who coincidentally are still able to be drafted. My grandfather's generation came to Congress and insisted that we be put into the draft because we wanted the responsibility along with the privilege of being American citizens. And so now we have higher numbers of enlistment than any of the states and pay the ultimate price um, with the number of casualties in conflicts per capita greater than other states as well. I think, uh, uh, oh, I think we, do we have time for a last question? Uh, well, then I will Give it to me, to you, what's the last one? Jeremiah on this. Since, uh, Come on, Jeremiah. <laughs> I always tell people, um, my first job out of law school was in the Bronx District Attorney's Office. And if you can believe it, I used to have to go in front of Judge Judy and her husband, Judge <laughs> also on a regular basis. And the way they are on TV is exactly how they were in the courtroom. So I can take it. I can take it. Crazy. So I know we're coming up on time here and you've got a hard stop in just a second. So we'll... <clears throat> I know we're coming up on time here and we've got a hard stop in just a second. So the last question I have as, as a big city liberal, you know, I live in New York City, Will's based out of DC and, and has been for a number of years. And you've spent time obviously in DC and New York. Um, what, can, what can places like DC and New York learn from the Virgin Islands? Because obviously it's a place with a rich history and a rich culture. And I, I don't think it's fair to only focus on, on the negative things, but there's a lot that the Virgin Islands could get right too. So. What can oh. we learn from, from you guys? Oh man, you can learn that small places can still do big things, right? Uh, some tremendously huge things come out of the Virgin Islands. Of course, we've got Tim Duncan. What's bigger <laughs> than the big fundamental himself, right? Uh, who, this, but, but this is the story about Tim Duncan that is also the story about Alexander Hamilton who also came out of the Virgin Islands from the island of St. Croix, is both of these are young men who uh, after Tim Duncan, as people may not know, was training for the Olympics in swimming. He, was, he wanted to be a swimmer and we were hit by a hurricane, um, Hurricane Hugo in 1989. 
And he had to give up that dream of swimming because there were no longer Olympic sized swimming pools in the Virgin Islands after the storm. And in the same manner, Alexander Hamilton was living in the Virgin Islands under really desperate conditions and wrote a letter to the editors after a hurricane. And the, the merchants read this in the local paper and said, here is a young man with promise. Let's pool our money together and send him to the colonies for further education and put money together for him to go to Princeton. He ended up at King's College, which is now Columbia University. And in the same manner, uh, Tim Duncan's family said, you cannot swim, but you're growing, you're strong, you're gonna play basketball and sent him to Wake Forest where he became a great sensation, but still keeps his roots back home in the Virgin Islands and does tremendous support and philanthropy and work back home. And Alexander Hamilton, uh, interestingly, Will, right? We have these insular cases that say that people from the territories are savage who can't understand Anglo-Saxon principles of law. You have a young, as other uh, founders called him, the Creole, uh, Alexander Hamilton, draft was one of the drafters of our constitution. Uh, we also have one of the oldest synagogues in the Western hemisphere one of the oldest Lutheran churches in the Western hemisphere, because we are a place where many cultures come together to work hard uh, and to try and build a better life. And after our last hurricanes of Irma and Maria, when we were down, you could see the tremendous community uh, and people creating uh, you know, means outside of federal government to support each other and to support our islands. So I would say that while we are a small place, we are rich in history and culture and will. And uh, we support this country by doing big things. Even sitting on, standing on the Senate floor to impeach a former president. I think it would be a mistake to overlook the Virgin Islands, both both the problems that, that the Virgin Islands faces, we shouldn't overlook those, Congress shouldn't overlook them, and we shouldn't overlook what, what can be contributed and, and has been contributed. Thank you, thank you so much. Spoken like a Jeremiah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. It, this has been fantastic. It really thank has. It's been, a, it's been a real education as well as just uh, uh, fun to get to know you better, to uh, the history that you've uh, I can't, offered can, here. I'm, I'm hoping we can continue work together on many projects. Okay. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out of a busy day, Representative Stacey Plaskett, to be with us. And I know we'll be hearing a lot more from you. Thank you. Take care. Let's take care. Thanks for listening. Want to learn more about the Progressive Policy Institute? Follow us on Twitter at PPI and on Facebook at Progressive Policy Institute, or go to our website at progressivepolicy.org. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen and check back for new episodes. We'll talk with you soon.